0: Are you listening? Hiteimaska. Ascolti. Tęcujesz mięka. Stai ascoltando.
1: Вы слушаете.
0: Nie zatyma. A temak żywim. Estás escuchando. Hören Sie zu. Darygus mi d. Damiesam rocho. Hęltesma.
1: The Global Voices podcast.
2: The world is talking.
1: Are you listening?
2: Hello world and welcome to the second part of our coverage of the Arabic bloggers meeting in Tunisia on the Global Voices podcast. I'm your audio friend Jamila and in this edition we continue to hear from some of the attendees and speakers who are in Tunis to talk about the Arab world online. Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Bahrain and many other countries have citizens living through a time of change and upheaval. Our online information these days is fast and furious when it comes to the minute-by-minute events. But how should we find context in a time of revolution? Zeynep Tefekci is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Zeynep presented a wonderful talk at the conference about the importance of putting revolution into an historical context. I asked her if we were paying enough attention to the wider picture.
1: That's exactly why I wanted to talk about the French Revolution and sort of have the sort of longer point of view because I also follow everybody on Twitter and Facebook and other social media tools and I have been noticing an enormous amount of frustration with the lack of progress in certain issues. Now the frustration is of course very understandable and we still have... You know, military trials going on in Egypt, problems of censorship in Tunisia that come up, and not to mention Syria, where there's still a bloody civil war. But I wanted to step back and say, you know, I also wish for faster progress. It's still so early in these fledgling democracies. That's what some of them are, and we still have civil wars going on in multiple countries, and Yemen, and we have, you know, a lot of repression in Bahrain. And the biggest danger is that the reformers, revolutionaries, the sort of various coalition of groups that led the revolution, that were in Tahrir, that were very active, if they get frustrated and drop out of the process, (laughs) that will actually ensure that the very thing they fear, lack of progress, becomes even more permanent because this is a very common problem with post-revolutionary transitions is that after the euphoria of the revolution is over and things start being rebuilt, it's a very slow, you know, one step forward, one step back, hopefully more forward than back, but it's a very slow back and forth process with a lot of obstacles, mazes, not always straightforward progress. And that's just historically been true. So I wanted to show them a picture of the Bastille with the storming of which is this great big symbol of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out there was at most like seven prisoners in Bastille. So the storming of the Bastille was a great symbolic moment. Mm But four forgers, two noblemen, and one murder suspect. The releasing of them is not a new era in Europe. It was this 100-year process. It involved many, many more revolution, counter-revolutions. But I just wanted to step back and say, I hear you. I hear the lack of progress. But this is how it always works. I also wanted to say, and I hope that got through, is that there is no finished model. Western democracies have witnessed an erosion of their democracies, a hollowing of sort of institutional mechanisms of control over non-elected entities. We're seeing this now with the Occupy Wall Street protests, this kind of uh, reactioning as unaccountable power, unelected power. So it's not like there's a ready-made solution they can adapt. And I'm from Turkey originally, and that Turkey comes up a lot as a model. And certainly there are many things positive about courtney mass in turkey but we have journalists in jail it's not like you can just say oh here's the turkish model and there are a lot of frictions and problems there too so that's my thing is that i think we're gonna have to evolve in this world where in the middle east what i've been saying is they have to solve 19th century problems like having elections it's not even a 20th century problem; it's a 19th century problem, along with 21st century problems, right? So they have to solve. Uh, they're part of the global financial crisis that's going on. We, you know, even though it's not really on the agenda, things like climate change are going to have major effect on Egypt with uh, Nile situation and the water situation. There's all these very, very interconnected global 21st century problems along with 19th century problems, and there are no solutions. And there are many, many things that the um, movements, I think, in the Middle East have demonstrated to the rest of the world in terms of the power of the participatory impulse of people saying we are not going to just sit back and watch while things go downhill in our country. And I think they've inspired. I see this very clearly among people talking about the Occupy Wall Street protests, especially in my tour timeline. I'm obviously not there, but I'm clearly seeing that they find the Tahrir in Tunisia and. It's going on to be an inspiration for let's get up, let's do something. And I think they can be proud that the sort of revolutionaries in the Middle East can be very proud that they have reignited a kind of participatory impulse which has been eroded in more established democracies. So it's a very interesting, fascinating, exciting but frustrating time period. Is it also
2: a problem of a medium in a way, in the way that history is exciting because we can look at something like the storming of the Bastille, that's a hot flashpoint, but also social media with its short forms in Twitter and its very current methods of, of reporting what's in front of people. Do you think that it lends itself to context or that it's harder for people to want to read something like a slower political progress or you know the installation of a system do you think people take oh. an interest or that it's just harder to present that well,
1: it's complicated because I don't see Twitter as and everyone talks about the 140 character but I see it as a stream rather than tweet at a time so there's actually an enormous amount of information really complicated and depth too, that can be communicated but You have to look at it not a tweet at a time, but as a stream. So um, while obviously it is not a complete means of observation, I think one can get a sense of a lot of political discussions by combining social media participation with also offline participation. I think they're just intertwined. I don't see them very separately. Now, in terms of wanting that revolutionary symbolic moment, I think that's like the storming of the Bastille was symbolized and became this powerful image even before social media partially because revolutionary moments are very powerful. Yesterday we watched this movie about the Tahrir uprising as well as stories of some of the bloggers and those images from Tahrir those 18 days even though I've seen many many last year, I was still very moved by looking at those images, because those are very moving images, and I think for the people who participated those are going to be an amazing memory of 18 days in their lives that they will probably Mm. never again experience in the same manner, Mm -hmm. so I think the sort of the revolutionary euphoria, that kind of focusing on Mm. that emotional, charged, short period, is not just because we sort of see it share it in social media but of course we also vicariously got to sort of watch people go through that but because those are genuinely powerful moments and you see this in other you know you have all these symbolic moments in history and again this always happens in the post-revolutionary period is that this patient building process begins and it's not as exciting or charged. it's not as adrenaline rushed as having you know your life on the line while being fired at. But that's what civil society is built on is that those uh, long processes, and that's what I think we need a lot more energy and participation, hopefully, to be directed at. If so, you can pick up the
2: emotion of a revolution through a stream like Twitter. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's also worth, in post-revolutionary reporting or citizen reporting, that it's worth more of a return to longer form writing to explain a context particularly to people who may be reading outside of a region Mm -hmm. or in different countries around the world so they gain a better
1: understanding? Well I think again it's not an either or. I think without blogging platforms Twitter would not work as well. I look at Twitter as a stream of conversation but most of what I see on Twitter are links to longer form articles which are then discussed back on Twitter so I look at it more as an ecology Rather than just one platform, and I my personal use, and most people I seem to interact with, is very heavily embedded in these long form discussions, you know thousands of word long debates that go back and forth. Uh, so I think of it something like uh, during the um, American Revolution, Tom Paine published you know famously long pamphlets, which were read. By half a million people, according to some estimates, which is a very, very large number considering the population at that time, they were then discussed in living rooms and salons and coffee shops and all of that. So that's kind of like that, you know, just the way you had, you know, the long Tom Paine pamphlets, which were then intensively discussed in conversations. I think we have, and we should have, more of a intertwining of longer form, you know, blogs, newspaper articles, investigative journalism that are also then discussed on more conversational platforms like Twitter and Facebook and other ones that uh, are out there.
2: Do you know about the Technology for Transparency Network? The Technology for Transparency Network is a participatory research and mapping project. The aim is to gain a better understanding of the current state of online technology projects that increase transparency, government accountability, and civic engagement in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia, China, and Central and Eastern Europe. The project is co-founded by Open Society Institute's information program and Omedia Network's Media, Markets, and Transparency initiative. Find out more at Global Voices Online Part of telling the story of Revolutionary Times online is the use of video. Most of you will have seen many clips on YouTube and other video services captured during protests. These snapshots are powerful in themselves, but it's also important to follow a narrative to gain a greater understanding of our times. Alexandra Sandels is a Swedish journalist and filmmaker who showed her documentary Zero Silence at the Arabic bloggers' meeting. I asked her where the film began and what it became.
3: It actually started as a project back in 2009, summer 2009. Me and two um, friends from Sweden. I was a journalist, I still am. I was working in Egypt, a lot with issues concerning freedom of expression. of bloggers and activists, they were also working in the Arab world. I mean, we sat down, I remember, I think we had a coffee in, in May 2009, we said, you know, we really should do a, a documentary about Arab bloggers, and uh, the spread of dissemination of, of information through non-conventional means in, in societies where freedom of expression and, and free word is uh, greatly suppressed. So, yeah, it all started as a project of bloggers and the plight of these activists and their causes. And also because we wanted to show, I mean, it sounds cliche, but we wanted to show a different side of the Middle East because I think it's still greatly unreported, or this kind of, of, of storytelling um, about you know, Arabs is still underreported in the Western media, at least in the Swedish media. Mm. So we really wanted to show a different side of the Middle East uh, and make you know, a very personal film about, about the stories of these people. You know, them hanging out with their mothers, them having coffee, you know, drinking a beer, talking about life, and then... Seeing them in action at work—it was never really our goal to make, you know, a, a newsy journalistic film about, you know, Twitter and Facebook revolutions. Uh, never was the goal. But of course, it's all in there because then came December 2010 in Tunisia, and then came 2011. So the theme shifted somewhat, but it's still sort of there. The red—the red line is still there. It hasn't really changed.
2: How did you choose the subjects, the, the people that you follow through the film?
3: I was working as a, as a journalist at the time in Egypt, so I was reporting, I was working there for a local newspaper. Back then I was focusing on issues concerning human rights and freedom of expression. So I was in very close contact with Wael Abbas and, and Hossam Hamalawi, I was interviewing them a lot. And at the time there were a lot of torture cases. These were the times when you had all these, you know, video clips of police brutality. In Cairo police stations circling around on the internet, it was very hot times. So that's, for me, was it was very clear who the Egyptian um, characters were going to be and then the, the Javeria and Johnny, the other two co-producers and directors, they had met Lilia through an exchange program in Sweden. And then the third, Rebecca, I'd met in Lebanon because uh, after Egypt I moved to Lebanon and I was doing kind of a, a series on, on issues concerning minority rights and, and homosexuals and et so I met Rebecca through that. And sort of we became very good friends and she was also my Arabic teacher so I came to know her very well over the years. And I just found her work very inspiring and, and, and fascinating. Um, she's also found her very brave, the way of, the way she is, how, how spoken she is. So I think in the end, I mean, we chose these these three or these couple of characters we found. I mean, we really felt that their work needed to be documented. We really found them inspiring and, and we really wanted to give them, you know, a voice because at the time, I mean, the authorities were doing everything they could to shut them down. Well, except in the case of Lebanon, because that's where you still have a great amount of press freedom and freedom of expression, but Tunisia and Egypt, for example. Mm-hmm.
2: It was asked, of course, after the screening, why to choose Lebanon, because it hasn't necessarily been in, I guess, mainstream headlines in the same way as the other countries. Why was it important to represent that in the film?
3: Well, I think it's it's Lebanon. We struggled with Lebanon, of course, because Lebanon is, is, is a very tough country. It's complex, and it's not really, you know, part of the you know, the the Arab Spring, Uh, we've seen, there were some major protests there actually, um, in in February, you know, we had protests against the sectarian, political sectarian system, you know, with 50,000 people out in the streets, but I think in the end no one ever really felt that, you know, there was going to be a revolution or that the sectarian system was going to be overturned. But, um, I mean, bottom line is no, I think Lebanon fits because it shows how complex the road to change is in the Middle East. That there's not one sort of formula. That it shows that in all Arab, in, it's, it's not like you can top There's there's one dictator to topple in all Arab countries or in all countries throughout the region. Um, and in Lebanon, it, it's 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 very difficult. And it's probably, in my, I'm this is just a guess. It's going to be the country that's going to take the longest to change, mm-hmm. just because the way things are run and the way people cling on to the sectarian system and are still sort of. You know, voting for the same uh, politicians that you know <laughs> been around for 30 years in the civil of a war so i mean in that sense i, I think it fits and it was it's also it was uh, from the beginning you know uh, the plan to keep to feature rebecca
2: do you think that presenting this in quality film footage for a change makes a difference because most people's relationship outside of these countries will be through news reports with reporters from mainstream media organizations or looking on YouTube at the the fuzzy but sometimes incredibly violent and hard to watch footage that you see on YouTube and other video places it's interesting to have this contrast but also some balance because you've got some of that user-generated footage in there how was it to mix this?
3: I don't think it was hard we made it consciously I mean of course we wanted to feature the YouTube clips in the film, because there's such a big part of, of the uprising and protest that that we're seeing. I mean, Syria, I mean, who would know what's going on in Syria if there wasn't for YouTube, for the YouTube clips that we're all watching every week with everyone dying on, in them. Terrible. But no, I, I mean, I hope that we can, uh, you know, that we can bring something new to the table with this kind of filmmaking. I mean, we more wanted to do sort of a, as I said, it, it's not a, a, a music journalistic film, it's really sort of a, a personal I guess, more poetic film about the stories of, of, of these people. And we wanted, therefore, to be beautifully filmed, we were synced with the music. But also, it was necessary, of course, to have the violence in there because, I mean, these protests and uprisings, I mean, a lot of people died, a lot of people suffered. And we wanted to have all bits and parts represented in the film. I mean, we were sitting there picking, you know, between YouTube clips and somewhere just too gory to feature, even though I think it would have been necessary to show them. But, you know, in the end, maybe we settled for, for lessons cases but I'm very happy at least that we featured them and I think without YouTube really in some countries here in the region no one would really know what's going on.
2: Bloggers from all over the world came to attend the conference to learn from Arabic bloggers about their experience and activism. Haider Hamzouz is a blogger from Iraq and we chatted about his activities
0: online. I have um, many activity that I'm doing in Iraq with the team of Iraqi bloggers. I have a personal blog. It's called uh, hamzooz.com. I'm writing about the technical issues and something like that to Iraqi bloggers that using uh, social media networking. How they can protect their own information and protect themselves and when they are using internet. I have uh, with the two young men. They are Iraqi bloggers from Iraq. We are created a, a blog. It's called Iraqistreets.com. We are writing about the daily life in Iraq from the streets when the people speak about their problems or something like that, electricity services and something like occupation and corruption in Iraq. So we are take these stories and publish it on Iraqistreets.com. We are trying to translate some maybe main topics to English and Arabic. And now with the Arab Spring, because that's what's happened in Tunis and Egypt, Iraqi activists and some activists on the internet. Also, they have a, a revolution in Iraq. It started in 25 February. And we, as an Iraqi bloggers, we should give these people the technology and some tools to cover these uh, demonstrations. So we make a training how to use Facebook in an way and how you, you are using Twitter to send the news from Tahrir Square, for example from Baghdad or the uh, whole of Iraq. So we create a website to make a, a documentary for Iraqi revolution. It's called IQ4C mean Iraqi streets for change. The link it's iq4c.wordpress.com. You can find the uh, videos, pictures, and some topics in Arabic and in English about what's happened ab- in Iraqi revolution and some attacks that happened from Iraqi army. The main point that people go out to Tahrir Square because they need a peaceful life. They need. Good services like electricity and uh, a good services for transportation and something like that, because still now, for example, for el- the electricity, we have just six hours in the day, and uh, the main points also for the corruptions that happened in the government and for occupation. Mm-hmm. This is maybe some of the main points that of. Uh, for demand of Iraqi revelation.
2: Are people safe online at all in Iraq when they're talking about these things? Because, I mean, it can be seen as being critical of governments if you're complaining about the services that you have, even if it's for change that people would expect. How are people finding it? Are they afraid or are they trying to take more steps?
0: Some of these activists they are um, afraid sometimes when they are using the social media networking when they are sharing their information so they are using nickname for example to protect themselves but uh, still now they don't have a very good culture of using this Facebook like to make a high profile for them when and where you can share your information and with who you can share your information, so this is very important and we are working on that to make uh, a training for these people Mm -hmm. to protect themselves on Facebook and Twitter also. But Facebook is very popular in Iraq than Twitter. Mm -hmm. Also, we don't have a very good technical, maybe in the government to attack us or to make censorship. But they are using, for example, make a profile, fake profile, Mm -hmm. and uh, they are monitoring us to see what are we doing, and maybe it's easy for them. They don't come to block t- your Facebook or something like that. It's easy for them to find you, find your information, where is your home, and kill, uh, maybe kill you. Iraqi
2: streets blogging, do you think that this gives a better idea for people who have not been to Iraq, or maybe only see things like news reports about daily living, what it looks like, what it feels like to, to live in that country?
0: This is one of the uh, main point that we are we created, the com because maybe most of them they don't know about Iraq, just they know the war and bombing from Iraq. They don't know that Iraqi people, they have a festivals. For example, we have a, a festival in 21 September and this year. Every year we have this festival about International uh, Peace Day. Mm-hmm. So we uh, make it in Baghdad to invite people to make a peace. We have a, a theater, we, have a sing- we sing a song with the children, we drawing on their faces and uploaded that uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. We are always using this uh, festivals, but sometimes we have a difficult when in language sometimes because we are published that in Arabic. So uh, some of Iraqi bloggers that have a, a good English language, we try to make contact with them mm-hmm. to share this also to translate everything to English and Arabic to know that Iraq it's not just a war place we have a life and we need to be peaceful we need a peaceful life for for iraq and for iraqi people
2: mm-hmm. and do you have both men and women participating in this
0: uh, yes but uh, some of them they, they didn't use their real name the, especially yeah, because the culture of our society in iraq but we have a famous iraqi women they are using uh, internet and they are writing about their lives and we have a, a programs in Iraq, it's called uh, Women in Technology. It's program work. Uh, we are, I'm a trainer in this program to develop the skills of women, how to use the, the technology in the right way, to find job, and to give uh, her a, a free space to speak about uh, their hair uh, feeling. And, uh, and we need to make something like to know her rights. This is very important because some of the women, they didn't know any, any, any rights.
2: Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English-speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at globalvoicesonline/lingua. For all of the people at the meeting, safety online is a priority. The dangers of being identified and apprehended for protest and online activity are numerous and in some cases horrifying. There are methods for staying safe that people can enact, of course, but there is also software that can help. Roger Dingledine works on an anonymity or privacy or circumvention tool called Tor. I asked him about the origins of the software.
4: The design for Tor actually started with the US Naval Research Lab. The idea was that they were building a system called onion routing so that anybody in their organization who needed to be safe online could do that. So the reason why the US government cares about this sort of thing is for example if they want to send a person overseas but not have anybody watching their network connection learn what their affiliation is or if they want to look at websites from their organization without anybody learning who's looking at the websites. And part of what they learned while they were working on it was you can't be anonymous by yourself, you can't be the only type of person using the network. So they realized that they needed to open it up more and that's when I got involved. We started out looking at TOR from a civil liberties perspective of how can you let people in the West have their privacy from corporations and governments and then I started getting email from people in China saying I'm using this to get around the firewall. So it turns out once you built an anonymity tool that doesn't let people watching you learn what websites you're going to then suddenly censoring governments can't figure out whether they want to censor a person because they don't know where they're going.
2: People can install Tor, does it have limitations? Because quite often with anonymity or privacy tools online, I'm not saying Tor at this point, they make great promises but surely people still need to be careful?
4: Absolutely. There's a lot that you need to learn about if you want to be safe online. Part of the goal of Tor is to take care of some of that for you by anonymizing where your traffic is coming from or where it's going. But the first thing that you need to think about is, for an easy example, if you make a blog post anonymously over Tor, but you write your name at the end of the blog post, Tor is going to do its job, but that might not be what you had in mind. And there are a lot more subtle examples of that, where if you're using a browser and the browser sends something identifying about you over Tor, Tor will still do its job, but there's a whole separate category of things you need to learn about in terms of making sure that the applications you use over Tor don't end up identifying you or harming you or leaking personal information.
2: Are there operating systems that work better with Tor? Is it across the board? Can anybody use it?
4: A Tor client should work on pretty much every operating system. We provide packages for Windows, OSX, Linux. There was a guy in Italy who ran Tor on his Xbox for a little while. We also have packages for Android. There's another fellow in Italy who made a package for the iPhone, but it's not as easy to use as it should be. So there's definitely a lot more usability and packaging work, especially for the more esoteric or newer operating systems out there.
2: And indeed, how easy is it to use? Because we now work on the internet in a time of easy user interfaces. Put your name in here, press this button, this will work. Is it difficult to install, or challenging, or or do people need to learn a lot to make it
4: work? That used to be the case. Now we have a package called the Tor Browser Bundle that comes with all the pieces of Tor that you need, and also the Firefox browser configured to use Tor safely. So, for example, it tries to not remember cookies and other identifying features about you. It also prevents you from using Flash because there are a lot of ways that if you run Flash applets, like from YouTube, then they can be able to trace you or uh, make your anonymity not work the way it's supposed to. So the Tor Browser Bundle tries to be configured in a way that you'll be safe. The challenge there is if you're in Turkey and you're using Tor because your government blocks YouTube, and then we turn off Flash for you, it's not going to do what you had in mind. So we have a, a challenge in terms of how do we either educate users about activities that are unsafe or how do we make unsafe activities safe enough?
2: Tor, as an influencer, do you work with companies, say like YouTube or companies using Flash, and ask them about alternatives so that the internet can be more inclusive for people who need to use something like Tor?
4: We've been working with the Chrome development team so that they can change Chrome to be something that we can actually keep safe. There are a lot of features that Chrome needs so that we can be able to turn them on and off, like not having cookies at certain times and a lot more complex things than that. So we work with a lot of different groups to try to make their applications able to be safe. In the case of YouTube in particular, there's a new feature in browsers called HTML5, which lets you play videos without an external plugin like Flash. And the world is moving slowly to being able to do that, uh, is a lot better in terms of privacy if you're playing HTML5 videos versus having an external application.
2: Just a mention there of HTML5, maybe not everybody is using it just yet. How important is it that equipment and software that you use is upgraded to be the latest versions? Does that help people?
4: Well, there are two issues there. One issue is are you running software that has all the security patches? and that's really important because I was just talking to a woman yesterday who was saying what about these people in Africa who are running Windows 98 and how can we keep them safe and the answer is there are so many security problems with Windows 98 that it doesn't really matter what you do once you're using that version of Windows it doesn't matter if you install Tor or uh, what browser you pick you're already completely open to so many security problems so in that sense keeping your security up to date is really important, but there are a lot of other applications out there where maybe the version you have is fine. You don't have to upgrade to the new features as long as you make sure you have enough security fixes.
2: With people making that turn towards using a lot of applications, it seems that there have been ideas to make your desktop into a a similar interface you might use on an iPod or a mobile phone to have these little apps that all seem to get upgraded at different times and people aren't necessarily sure what the changes are specifically. Is it getting harder to track down loopholes?
4: Part of the challenge that we have is trying to find applications that are safe to use with Tor. So we started out looking at Firefox and we put a lot of energy into making Firefox safe to use with Tor. There's an extension we wrote called Tor Button that deals with a lot of the application level privacy stuff. And from there we were looking at an instant messaging client called Pigeon that supports a lot of different instant messaging protocols. It can do Jabber and AIM and MSN, but it also does QQ, which is what everybody in China uses. And then we started analyzing it for security and found some problems. And we worked with the Pigeon people to fix those problems. But there are so many other applications out there that nobody has looked at. And in general, we found that if nobody's looked at whether an application cares about your privacy, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So the challenge from our perspective is there are a lot of users out there who have some application in mind. And we have no idea whether it's safe. Mm -hmm. And that probably means it isn't safe.
2: Do you feel that it's a responsibility now for people who make software, particularly software that connects to the internet, do you take into account that the little company of three people might grow hugely, like something like Twitter, as to how that may be used in the future if it reaches some sort of critical mass?
4: Well, there are a lot of things to think about. So one of the challenges in these sorts of designs, there are a lot of centralized designs, and Twitter is one example, but looking at anonymity or privacy or circumvention tools, The instinct for a lot of people is to say, I'm going to set up one computer and everything is going to happen on that one computer. So for example, in a proxy system, all of the users are going to send their traffic over that single computer and it's very easy to build, it's easy to understand, but now you have a bottleneck that means if anybody wants to break in or ask you for logs or convince you to start logging, then there's a single place to go to, and if you succeed at that, then you win for all the users. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to design a system that doesn't have that centralized vulnerability. Mm -hmm. But if you care about privacy, maybe you should be looking in that direction.
2: Given that you've got insane skills in what you do, why dedicate it continually to something like Tor? Surely you could have made a program that would have made you a billionaire and gone to live on a secret island instead this is an ongoing project there's still going to be heaps to do as well why that choice why for you
4: have to save the world i guess that's the short answer i mean there are so many different problems out there in society and technology and governments and civilization one of the key points that's common to a lot of these problems is the lack of ability to communicate freely So part of our goal is if we let people have freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of learning, then they're going to be able to decide what they want to do with their world in a way that right now a lot of people can't contribute to that. They can't participate in that discussion.
3: Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world, dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org.
2: That's all we have for the podcast editions of Global Voices at the Arabic Bloggers Meeting for 2011. Thanks to everyone who took time to talk to me, to the organisers for creating such a fantastic forum, and to Mark Cotton who adapted our Global Voices theme tunes for this particular pair of episodes. You can find out more about the people in these podcasts and the event itself by visiting globalvoicesonline.org. The Global Voices podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices stories on Facebook too.